I remember the day like it was yesterday. There were grandparents on both sides gathered at our house. There were aunts, there were uncles, there were friends, there were people from our church, and they were all at my home to see my little brother. My little brother had just been born. I was four years old, and I enjoyed four years where I was just a center of attention and affection from my parents and from my grandparents and from my aunts and uncles and friends. I was the center of attention, but not this day. Everybody came over, and they didn't pay any attention to me. They were fascinated with my little brother. All eyes were on him, and I did what any oldest sibling that was an oldest sibling for a few years would do. I marched up to my mother, and I said, take him back. And that started a trend. I had another brother a couple of years later, and the same thing happened, and I had to learn how to share time and affection and care with my other siblings. But every kid has this meter in their hearts and in their minds about favoritism, don't they? They're looking at it at, at Christmas time. All the parents are doing this right here. At Christmas time with how many gifts did you get and what did you get? And um, you, you got in trouble less than I got in trouble. And mom and dad, you love that kid more than me. And that's just the meter. You get more food when it's night for chicken fried steak than I do. And on and on and on. And as you get older, we talk about this as it relates to children. But the truth is we're always measuring these things in our family. And I can look around today and I can see friends who are still bitter at their brother or their sister or their parents because of favoritism or perceived favoritism. I still see people around that are competing for their parents' approval, still living even as an adult with bitterness and envy and these tensions in the family, and maybe you've already had the conversation, maybe you're thinking about, okay, we're going to grandma's at Thanksgiving, and we're going to the other grandparents at Christmas, and I wonder what it's going to be like this time. I wonder if mom and dad are still going to be partial, not only to my sibling, but their kids, right? It's a grand, it becomes a grandkid thing. So we live in this broken world where we love our families, but there's always family tensions, whether they're spoken or unspoken. You see, favoritism can fracture, and yet God can fix broken things. That's what we believe. Does God need to mend your heart from family fracture due to favoritism? Do you have any envy or hate that is still welled up within you from past or present things? Do you have any cruel or low blow things that you've done to someone in your family because of your pain and your hurt because of favoritism? Have you been on the receiving end of this? And better yet, um, are you blinded by the favoritism perhaps that you show for a kid or a brother or sister? I want you to think about those things. We come to this text this morning and you can cut the favoritism with a knife and I can almost promise, I don't know all your stories, but I can almost promise you that the story that we're in this morning is worse than any story that I have or you have about favoritism in your family. You can cut it with a butter knife. Genesis 37, if you'd turn with me there. Genesis 37, you don't have to read into the situation. There is a lot of family dysfunction that contributes to the favoritism we're going to see and the tension and the predictable, ugly consequences of it in this family's life. But yet, God is still at work, as he always is. As we just saying, God is still at work, 
even in a really blown up situation. So Genesis 37, we've been in the book of Genesis for a while now. We've looked at the first 11 chapters, which really are foundational to us in understanding who God is and what he's made. And then we come to the life of Abraham, life of Abraham, a man of faith and a man of many faults. And God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And so we begin to trace this promise, not only of land, seed, and blessing for the nation Israel, but also When is a redeemer going to come? And we trace it through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And now we come to the story of Joseph. Joseph takes up 13 chapters in your Bible from 37 to 50. And really, this section begins to talk about the sons of Jacob. And Joseph is the primary character. And we know Joseph. We look at Joseph sometimes and go, man, I can't live up to that example of integrity and forgiveness. And yet his early years were fraught with a few things as well. He was a fallen man who needed redemption as well, but we come to his life, and you're going to see today, you're going to see a really dysfunctional family, but you're also going to see God working in the background. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can be working in the background of really hard, whether it's family dynamics or work dynamics or life dynamics, do you believe that God is working providentially? I use that word, it's a big $50 word in theological circles, providence, The idea of providence is simply this, that God is directing all of the universe in the direction that he wants it to to head. Think about it this way. When you look at a ship, it's sailing on the sea. There's a rudder under the ship that you can't see that is pushing with its power and its supply the world, that ship in a certain direction. And that's what God does. Behind the scenes, he is providentially working. And when I think of the life of Joseph, I think of God's providence in his hardship to bring about good and great things. And so Genesis 37 verses one through 11, look at the text with me, it should be above us as well. And I want you to note as I read it and explain it, I want you to note all the family dysfunction that you're seeing. It may be encouraging to you. Um, Verses one through 11, let let me read it and then we'll unpack it a little bit. And as I go, I'll unpack some truths and observations and then we'll bring this to an understanding. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. So he's not outside the land like Esau is, but he's inside the land of Canaan where he should be. These are the generations of Jacob. Do you see that phrase right there, generations? You've seen it 11 or 10 times before. This is the way in which Genesis moves from section to section. And so this is the last section of Genesis. And that word in Hebrew, toledot, simply means an accounting of Jacob and his sons. And here's the main character in verse two, Joseph. He's the 10th of 11th children. Being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock, so they're shepherds with his brothers. Look at the dysfunction. He was a boy, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah. So here's the first thing that you need to remember about Jacob Jacob has four wives. Back then, this was more common. It was still sinful and wrong. God, that was not God's purpose or plan. Remember, he had a wife. uh, He wanted Rachel. He got Rachel, but he also married the servant, Bilhah. And then he had Leah first, and she had a servant, Zilpha. So he's got four wives. That's a problem, right? That's a problem for the situation. And so their sons are Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. So here it is, this boy, this Boy who's looking after who? He's, he's giving a report to, about his older brothers and he's coming back to his father. 
and telling him a report. Now, just think about this as a parent. Would you put your young, one of your youngest in charge of bringing reports about the older and what they're doing? Is that a good move as a parent? I don't think this is Joseph's fault. I think he's probably living a life of integrity, and so his father, this is his father's problem. And so Joseph brings a bad report about these men who previous texts tell us these are violent men. They're troubling men. And he's 17 years old, and so he's, I don't know that Joseph is just coming back tattletailing. I don't think that's the thing. I think what's happening is Jacob, Jacob is putting his son in a really tough position. And so he goes and gives a bad report of them. And then look at verse 3. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Moses is just flat out telling you he loved this son more than he loved the other sons. And guess what? That's felt by the brothers as it always is. And they come out and say it a few verses later. This is problematic. This is a challenge. Because he was the son of his old age. You got any babies in here? The son of his old age, the youngest, they're just, you know, by that time it's just like, hey, they're cute and we're just going to let them go, right? But here's the other thing that's going on, thinking of favoritism. Jacob has already made some other mistakes with favoritism. Which wife did he love the most? He loved Rachel. Who are Rachel's children in her old age? Joseph and Benjamin. She's passed away, so guess what? Guess who Jacob loves the most? The children from the wife he loves the most. This is dysfunction. This is favoritism that is passed down. If anybody should know better, it's Jacob, right? Anybody should know better, it's Jacob. His father Isaac did what? He loved Esau more than Jacob. He's felt the sting of favoritism. But his mom loved him more. And what did that cause? That caused almost a lifelong division between brothers. And yet here he is doing the same thing with his own sons. And look at what he does. He gives him a robe of many colors. Like this isn't just a robe that he gives one son and the other sons. This is like the signet ring of the family. And, he's, and it's a colorful robe apparently. And so all the brothers see it and they know that, that Jacob is saying, hey, this is my favored son. And everybody can see it every day because he's probably wearing that robe every day. So what is that going to produce? Look at this. So he has this robe, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more, it's very apparent, that's what favoritism does, than his other brothers, what did they do? This is predictable, isn't it? They, they hated him, and they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They didn't want to be around Joseph at all because of this. Look at it. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. We've seen dreams before in the Bible, and this dream is from God, and both the brothers and Jacob acknowledge it as a dream from God of something that's going to happen, but this is kind of problematic. Look at it. And he had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more, okay? He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed, verse 7, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. So this is an agrarian dream. You're about to have an astrological dream next. He's got two of them. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, should you share this dream? This is a 17-year-old. Should you be sharing this dream with brothers who already hate you? Hey, guys, let me tell you about my dream. You're going to bow down to me. <laughs> There's one result that happens. Look at the second dream. And they say, are you going to rule over us and reign over this? So they hated him even more. I don't know how to hate him even more and more, but... 
that's what it says. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told his brothers again. Bad mood, brother. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers also bow down to you? And his brothers were jealous, so they hated him, they hated him, they hated him, they were jealous of him, didn't want to be around him at all. But his father kept saying, keep the saying in mind. The reason he kept the saying in mind is because he's had a dream that was from God. And the reality is, is as off as it is to share this with your brother, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is, if you know the story of Joseph, there is truth in this dream. It's prophetic of what is in the end going to happen in the story. Ill-timed sharing is the problem for Joseph. And so you see the father's favoritism. You see the brother's anger. You see Joseph's not being so wise. Do you know why partiality is, is so wrong and so defeating? The book of James, which we are in this summer, tells us why. The book of James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, I think we have that text with us. James 2, 8 and 9, remember the scene in James 2? Um, there were wealthy people that were coming to church, and they were wealthy, but they were also the people that were oppressing the poorer people in the church because they worked for them. And there were people in leadership in the church that were bringing the people into the church and sitting them down front because they had money. And James says, don't show partiality. And in verse 8 and 9, he gives you more of the reason why. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's breaking the law of love. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. You're committing sin and is conceived by the law of transgression. So there's going to be out of sin. There's going to be problems. And that's exactly what you see here. So this is... Jacob, as a father, not being loving to all of his sons. This doesn't mean you can't have particular friendships with people in a church, but it does mean if you are being partial because somebody has more money, or you like them more, or they live in this zip code, or they do this or that, then that's not loving. It's sinful and wrong. Whether they have this skin color or that skin color, that's not the way in God's economy it works. And this is what you see in this family, and this is the results you see. And so here's your point. Your first point is this. Favoritism creates deep relational tensions within a family. It creates deep relational tensions in a family. When I was a kid, we used to go fishing, and for a, a little while, my dad would help me with all, all of the string. I would throw it, and I would hit a tree, and then he would help me, and after a while, though, what he would say is, you're going you're gonna to clean up the mess. Like, you're going to untangle the fishing line. And so you've got to learn how to do that. Kids, does your dad still do that? Or your mom still do that? You've got to learn how to untangle the fishing line. But what usually happens, at least for a while, is it gets worse. That fishing line gets more tangled when you're trying to get it apart. And that's what I look at when I see this text. When I see this text, I see this big dysfunctional mess of a family. And it's hard to untangle how deeply messed up this family is, and this is why it takes God to do that, and we can't do that. This is God's work. So here's the problem, our favoritism that we need to maybe identify. Let's think about potential areas in our life. You think about how blind Jacob was to this. He's about to send his son, who his other brothers hate, out into the field, way far away, 
See, favoritism is often blinding and it's hard to see. And so maybe we need to take a check as parents or grandparents or friends or in our church or with our children. What relationships in your family do you need God to untangle the mess? In what ways can you pursue this royal law of love with your children, your siblings, and your family? And perhaps you need somebody outside of yourself, maybe somebody outside of your family to go, hey, can you, you know our family well. Can you give me some help? Do you think that there are potential situations in which I might favor one over the other? That's a dangerous question, by the way. But we need help seeing that sometimes. And the kids are going, yeah, come do that. That would be awesome. But I want to I clarify something else. Kids particularly, and I think this applies to us as adults. See, we have a limited view of things. You know, the older I get, the less favoritism I think that was really present in my family. <laughs> the older I get, the more I say, and becoming a parent, this is hard stuff, right? And so I, have a limit, I had a limited view and so it's not always favoritism. The other thing is, is oftentimes as kids, here's what we do. We equate favoritism with fairness. And, and that's not the same thing necessarily. With fairness, listen, you may have a sibling that's three years older than you. And at Christmas time, they may get an iPad this year. And you're three years younger. And that may mean, hey, they don't, they're not being favorites to the older sibling. They're just saying, hey, when you get to be 13 or whatever that number for you is as a family, these are things that you can start having. The other thing is trust. I think about the lack of trust that my parents probably had for me in comparison even to my younger brothers. This is a, there's a trust issue. If you're 16 as a kid, or let's say you're 16 or 17 and you're not trustworthy and you haven't demonstrated a trustworthiness to your parents, they might not give you the keys to the car. They might not do that yet. They might give your younger brother when they turn 16 the keys of the car before you did. And it's not because there's favoritism. It might be because you've got to build trust. So just think about these things. And parents, let's not assume that we don't show it. We need people to help us think through it. So favoritism can create deep relational tensions in a family. But predictably, let's look at what happens. Look at predictably, we know what's going to happen. We may not think it's going to be this brutal, but look at what happens in verse 12 through 35. Let me just walk through it, and you can predictably see what's going to happen. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock, verse 12, near Shechem. Shechem's the place, we skipped it, but Shechem's the place just a chapter or two before where Levi and Simeon, because um, some people went after their daughter, and did some things to the daughter. This is where they wreck shop on a whole slew of people. Let's just say it that way with kids present, right? They came in and wrecked shop at Shechem. This is 60, 50 miles away. And Israel said to Joseph, the one who everybody hates, the one who all the sons hate, are, you, are not your brothers pasturing the flock? At Shechem, come, I will send you to them. Is that wise? No, he's blind to the situation that's happening because of his favoritism. And he said to them, here I am. This is Joseph being obedient. This is a young man of integrity. And he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he's going to give another report. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and, he, and, and the brothers weren't there. And so he seeks answers of where they are. Tell me please where they are. Verse 16, they're pasturing their flock. A man said they have gone away. And I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which is another 10 miles away. So he's 60 miles from home in a desolate place where there's nobody at. 
know what? At that point, if I'm Joseph, I'm like, man, my brothers don't even like me. I'm going home. Like, I'm going to go back to my father. I don't know where they are. I don't know about you, but he doesn't do that. He does what his father called him and asked him to do. He goes and finds his brothers, and he walks 10 more miles to find them. Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went. This is obedience to his father. After his brothers were found in Dothan. And check this out. Look at those words, verse 18. And they saw him. They saw him. It makes me think of Genesis when they see the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They saw it. And they saw him. And look at what they do from afar. And before they came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Because they hated him. They didn't want to be around him. They were sick of it. This is sin. This is wrong. They said to one another, he come, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. The pits were just places where water was stored when it rained. But it's empty. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. This is the story. They've got the cover-up. They plot to kill him. They've got the cover-up already in their minds. They're in a bad place. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. They're mocking him. But when Reuben, the oldest, who'd already messed up before, he wants to get back in his daddy's good graces, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. He didn't say let us not do something to him. He said, Don't let, we're just not going to take his life. And Reuben said to him, shed no blood, throw him into the pit um, here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand upon him. And here's the motive, apparently, from Moses, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father, because he needs restoring as the oldest to his father for what he did in a few chapters before. So 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, this tunic, right? The, the signet ring, he, they stripped him of it. He's 60 miles from his dad, his dad's not showing up. The robe, the many colors that he, he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Look at how callous they are. The pit's right here and they're eating, just chilling. They know what they're doing to the brother and they just sit and eat. And he's crying and he's going through all of this. What are you gonna do to me? I wonder what that conversation was like, but they're just sitting there eating like it's no big deal. This is how callous envy and resentment can become in our hearts. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are like distant cousins, right? Ishmaelites. Isaac and Ishmael, great grandfather. These are distant cousins coming to Gilead with their camels and gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way, they carry it down to Egypt. Keyword, Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it us to kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him. So the, the plot gets thicker. We're going to kill him. No, we can't kill him. We're going to put him in the pit. Oh, let's do something better than just leave him to die. Let's make some money off this deal, and he can still go away. Let not our hand be upon him. Oh, you're so righteous, Judah. Come on. For he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. That's rough. The Midianites, which is just Ishmaelite traders, passed by, and they threw Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels. That was the going rate for slaves. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and he wasn't there, he tore his clothes, the boy's gone, where shall I go? Reuben seemed to care about his brother. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. What's the irony of that statement? They slaughtered a goat and they put all the blood on this tunic, this favorite tunic, and they brought it back to father Jacob so he would think that fear killed 
the brother or took the brother. What do we remember back with Jacob and his brother? What did he do? He took a goat and he put it on his skin so he could deceive his father. And now his sons are deceiving him. A lot of irony here. And then they told their father and tore his garments and he didn't want to be consoled. So here's your second idea. This is rough. Left unchecked, resentment can boil over into cruel and devastating behavior. Left unchecked, resentment can boil over into cruel and devastating behavior. And this is what happens with these sons. Listen to this quote because I think it it encapsulates this, this whole situation. It says this, Envy weeps with those who rejoice. And cruelty rejoices with those who weep. See, there's a warning here. There's not just a warning for the person showing favoritism. There's a big warning here for those of us who have been offended by someone, maybe even in our family, that we have this hatred and we have this jealousy and we have this envy and resentment. And listen, in one way or another, that's coming out. How's it going to come out? You know, it's interesting when uh, I sit in, in counseling sessions with, with the offender and the offended, whether it's a marriage, whether it's relationships that are broken. Most of the time, the hardest work has to be a done by not the offender, but the offended. Because not only are you hurt, you usually have a harder time forgiving You have a harder time working through all the pain of it. So it's a double whammy. And this is what I think we see in this text that Joseph's got more to work through just like you and me. So there's a warning here. So let me ask you, when your envy and anger boils over, what might you need to do so that that doesn't show up and come out? Perhaps that's a discussion with a parent or grandparent, perhaps that's a discussion with the person that you're bitter with and you're frustrated with because something maybe that they've done to you that hasn't been worked out. See, what you're doing when you do that is you're pursuing reconciliation. And here's the thing. Sometimes reconciliation doesn't work. And so what you have to do in that case when it doesn't work and they're not ownership is you have to just have consolation. You have to have consolation with the Lord and leave it at the cross and leave it with the Lord and say, this is not worked out, but I'm just leaving this with you. You can handle this and I can move on. But you've got to take action. That's what you don't see in this text. And I don't know what happened. I don't know the conversations that Reuben and Judah and all the other brothers ever had with their father about, hey, your clearly, your clearly favored son is Joseph. And it makes me angry. And frustrated. And you not, may not be able to change that. But those are things that you need to do to get reconciliation, at least a shot at it in your life. And if you don't get it, then you've got to leave it with the Lord. And let him work it out. But you can't live all you could, but you, can't, you shouldn't live your whole life just being bitter and angry and resentful. Because it will spill out. And it may not even spill out into those people. It might spill out into people you love and care about. You've got to go to the Lord with these things. You don't see that happening in this text. I don't know what it looked like, but you don't see that. You just see this inward, deep bitterness and hatred 
with the brothers. So left unchecked, resentment can boil over into cruel and devastating things. So where's God in all this? That's what I want to know. <laughs> where's God in this situation? Because what's happening? Remember, God has promised this family, this clan at this point, it's not a nation yet. God has promised them land, seed, and blessing. He's promised Israel to be a great nation. They're not a great nation yet. And this family looks like it's about to implode. So, so what's God up to? What is he doing that they can't see or feel? Understanding that is understanding verse 36. Look at verse 36. Verse 36 says this. So these Ishmaelites are taking him, are going to Egypt. They take him to Egypt. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt. So you get more information. Not only has he gone to Egypt, sold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Here's what, here, I'm going to give you the point and then I'm going to unpack it, but I've got to take you to some other biblical texts so you see the big picture here. Here's what God is doing. God is working through hard things, affliction. He's working through affliction to bring about his good providential purposes. You can't see it in this text. All you see is he's going to Egypt. But what do we know? From Genesis chapter 15, we know a couple of things. Do you remember Genesis 15 when God comes and he gives this incredible covenant to Abraham that Chris preached about a few weeks ago? And he promises him land, seed, and blessing. And he says, I will swear by my own name that this will happen. In the midst of that, he does something in these verses. He tells him something that's going to happen in the future. Look at it. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain this is going to happen that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants, slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Where is that? It's Egypt. They were there for 400 years. If you've lived past the Exodus, you can look back and say, that's exactly what God is talking about. This is Genesis 15. This is way before Joseph. Keep looking. But I will bring judgment on that nation, and they, verse 15, will serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's the blessing. That's the blessing part of this covenant. So are you telling me that God is going to put them through affliction and suffering so that these promises can happen? That's exactly what I'm telling you. How do you feel about that? That God is going to use hard things, affliction, in the life of his people, this family that he's called to himself, and he's going to use that to bring about the promises that he's promised him. This is God's providence. That God is directing all things according to his plan. He's directing today, he's directing tomorrow, like the rudder of the ship that you can't see and I can't see. He's directing, even through hard, not just the good stuff. That's easy, right? I can see God moving and directing in the easy stuff. That looks great. But what about when you're Joseph and you're betrayed by your brothers and yet that's God's plan? That's a head-scratcher sometimes for you. That's a head-scratcher for me sometimes, but look at it. Here's what's, here's what's wild. There are two vehicles in which God used for this to happen. One of them was a famine. Look at what Psalm 105 says about this famine. This is, this is hard stuff. Psalm 105 says this. Telling, Psalm 105 is all about telling of God's wondrous works. And it's a recollection for Israel about all the ways that God has been glorious and worked in the nation Israel so that they can do what we're going to do next week at Harvest Dinner. They can celebrate and remember what God has done. 
But here it is. He's, so he's, they're telling of God's good works that God summoned a famine. Maybe one verse before, maybe I missed it. Verse 16 says, but when he, God summoned a famine on the land. So does it say a famine came or does it say God did it? God summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply or provision of bread. And he sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, if you're Joseph and you were reading this, you're like, oh, is that the way you think about it? Like, I was just sent ahead? Like, there's a camel over here and there's like this royal purple robe and wine. Could I just take a trip in the royal carriage to Egypt and hang out with the Pharaoh? That's not how it happened. Right? A man ahead of them. That's, God sent him in a different way. He put him in a pit. Then he put him in a prison. And he's crying out. And then he brings him to the pinnacle. Who's sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until he said, what he said came to pass. Those dreams came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. God is in the business of testing and refining us. Now here's the kicker. The kicker is this. How does Joseph see what happened to him? How do you see what happens to you? And this is later. I'm going to assume when Joseph is in that pit and he's been betrayed by his brothers, I'm going to assume at that point he's got some questions. (laughs) He's been a man of integrity. He's done what his father's asked him to do, and he's in a pit. And then he goes to Potiphar's house, which we're going to get to, and he's trying to be a man of integrity and not do what Potiphar's wife wants him to do, And guess what? He's in prison. So if you're in that place, in that place, at that time, you're probably asking questions, rightfully so. But once he gets to Egypt, what is his response to his brothers when they come? (laughs) I hope at some point in my life I get there. Psalm, I mean, Genesis 45, he says this. To his brothers, don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. They clearly sinned against him. God sent me before you to preserve life. That's a perspective. He's got a different perspective on all the rough junk that he's gone through. Verse 8 in Genesis 45 says, It was not you ultimately who sent me here, but God sent me here. And that's some serious perspective on trouble and pain that you didn't deserve. That's where he's at. And then 50, Genesis 50, we know this text, right? Verse 20, As for you, brothers, you meant it. What you meant, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it, not used it, meant it for good that many people should be kept alive. Let me ask you a couple of questions. This is important. I think this is a great way to understand, a great passage in which we can understand God's providence and how does that relate to evil and those kind of questions. Did Joseph's brothers sin against him? Absolutely. Was it wrong? Absolutely. It was absolutely wrong. They have moral responsibility for what they did. And yet, at the same time, did God use it and purpose it, let me just say it, purpose it, to accomplish his good providential purposes in the end? Yes and yes. Questions there? Yes. (laughs) But this is how God's providence works. We always don't understand what's happening. But God is the rudder directing the ship and supplying the ship. And I love Joseph's response in the end. Here's the thing in life, though. Sometimes we don't get to see what Joseph got to see, right? Sometimes we don't know the answer. Joseph could look back and go, yeah, I can see it. Sometimes God doesn't give us the answer, but I want to encourage you with this text. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. It's not going to be up there. It's at the bottom of your sheet. Paul says this. Remember Paul? He's the guy that's always afflicted. 
He's gone through beatings. He's gone through all kinds of mess, shipwreck, beatings. He's lost all his worldly fame and renown for being the Pharisee of Pharisees. And he says this, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Check this out. For this light momentary affliction, that's the way Paul talks about his suffering through his whole life. This is Paul. Light momentary affliction. That's hard to get my man. You went. You didn't go through light momentary affliction. You went through regular, mo, not momentary, but regular affliction. Your much of your Christian life until they took you out. But he calls it light momentary affliction. Why? Because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he's comparing the eternal weight of glory that he's moving for, that God is preparing for him. And he's saying, my suffering isn't meaningless. You catch that? My suffering is not meaningless. It has purpose. And when you're suffering and you're going through hardship, what do you think? What meaning is this? Where's the meaning in this? I don't see it. I've been in COVID for nine, whatever it is, eight months now. What's, what's the meaning of this? Why not three months instead of however long we're in this deal? Or whatever else you want to fill in. But in comparison, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What do you mean, Paul? How do I see what's unseen? You're asking me to see what's unseen. That doesn't make any sense. He's asking you to see what's unseen by just having an eternal perspective of what's coming. That we know for sure what's coming. The eternal weight of glory. Your suffering is worth it. John Piper says it this way. He says, don't waste your suffering. It's hard and he's with you in it, but don't waste it. He's using it to prepare for you an eternal weight of glory. So whatever situation you're in, he's preparing you for the eternal weight of just like he was preparing Joseph for all that would come in his life. Do you believe God can purpose hard things to bring about his good plans for you? Do you believe that? See, hardship is not meaningless. It's meaningful. And it's really cool when you walk through something and you get through it and then God uses you. God uses you in other people's lives who are going through the same stuff to bring encouragement and hope to other people around you that are walking through the mess of life. Well, favoritism can certainly fracture families, but God is always working and he's bringing about his providential purposes. I'm gonna close with this. This is a boy who asked his mom, what does God do all day long? It's a great question. What does God do all day long? And this is your takeaway, and this is the response of the mother. Wisely says this. She says, God is mending broken things. That's what God does with his time. He's mending broken things. And you know one of the chief ways in which he does that? The chief way in which he does that is the good news of the gospel. Here's what happens. God the Father has a son, a son that he loves, that was hated by his earthly brothers, sold him out for 30 shekels, stripped him of his clothes, throw him into a pit of the cross, left him for dead, but he didn't stay there. He rose on the third day and he resides at the pinnacle of his father's right hand, at the king's right hand and he offers forgiveness and restoration to the brothers who sold him out you and me he offers forgiveness and restoration for you and me who've sinned against him and he welcomes them back 
That's the beauty of the gospel. That's how God mends broken things. That's how God mends your heart and your life and my heart and my life. Do you know him? And if you know him, are you allowing him to mend your broken heart? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. This is a hard text to see the favoritism of a family and the effects of it, the rippling effects of it through this family, and yet you're at work. And so we can sing the words that we sang earlier. Even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. That you're always working. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for the example of Joseph that you give us, that we can remember that you're always working, even through the hard, not just the good, but even through the hard. So Lord, I pray for people in this room that are going through hardship or people in this room where life is good. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you're always working. You're always working in our lives. And sometimes you work in ways that we don't understand and we don't have answers for, but yet you're working to mold us, as the Bible would say, into the image of Christ. And Lord, I pray for one that may not know Jesus in here, may not know the mending power of Jesus, that he would change our hearts and give us forgiveness. Lord, I pray that they would come to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.